Welcome to Destination Charging, a podcast by PowerDot, your insight into the future of sustainable mobility. Join us as we explore the different perspectives of those who are accelerating the world towards a greener future. Today with me, I have Ryan Fisher, uh, the head of EV charging infrastructure at Bloomberg Energy Finance. Thank you very much for being with us today. Looking forward to the conversation. Awesome. So today we will have uh, some time to discuss a common interest, uh, electric mobility, I guess. So, but uh, before we, we jump into the market questions, I, I would like to start with, with your experience within the sector. So I know you, you joined and we started working with electric mobility around eight years ago, if I, if I understood correctly. Um, so why did you decide to join the sustainable mobility movements in the first place? I started the grand scheme at Jaguar Land Rover um, and they had a, an ability to kind of move around different departments. And I got into a, kind of a strategy team uh, that was looking at like diversification of revenues. Where, where is where is the business going when we, we stop selling cars? And one of the things they also owned was uh, e-mobility. Um, so that was really when my journey started. And uh, at the time the iPACE was coming out. Um, so that was a big thing for the business. And it was kind of going from uh, somewhat of a maybe smaller side project to being more of a core project. And then I think around five years ago, maybe a little bit, um, four and a half, five years ago, um, I started a BNF. So um, I was a BNF client when I was at um, JLR and then um, had now really been working on writing about the EV sector and charging uh, for, yeah, the best part of five years. Um, and that's what's led me to today. You know, when, when working at uh, Jaguar Land Rover, you know, what did you see there uh, that motivated you to continue working in this sector? Was it an impressive uh, experience for you? Yeah, I mean, it's explosive growth. You can see when you, you look at the technology um, that that was going to be um, the one of the future. Uh, some of it, I mean, you just look at the policy. I remember going into meetings where they're discussing uh, the fines that a lot of these um, automakers were going to get. Um, if they didn't, didn't comply, and I think... Jaguar Land Rover at the time had some kind of uh, derogations whereby they, they didn't have as much volume and therefore you, you might not meet the fines, but clearly they, they were aware of them and, and looking into it, um, as well as the technology side just, just being better. So looking at the batteries and uh, sitting in the iPace that being designed, um, very, very cool. And uh, yeah, the industry clearly going that way and it kind of inspires you to get involved and uh, ride that wave, I suppose, as it's got bigger and bigger. And now you're at uh, Bloomberg uh, NEF, right? Uh, can you please describe like a little bit of your experience working uh, working in the sector at Bloomberg and what you've been doing so far and and your role? We we have clients um, basically all over. So it's been really interesting because we have policy majors who sub subscribe to it, like policymakers who subscribe to our work, automakers, utilities, oil and gas majors. So we get the the fortune of both obviously looking into what each of those uh, players is doing, but then actually going and discussing with them and and kind of learning firsthand about what's going on. So that that's been kind of eye opening, I suppose. You don't in any single company get to understand a lot of those different things all happening in one place and of course whilst um, most people probably think EV charging is quite niche and maybe we don't be, being on this call the reality is many many sectors are interested in it and uh, being here has kind of enabled me to both see that but also the interlinks so BNF kind of started with uh, clean energy wind solar analyzing a lot of those markets and we've expanded to do um, 
things like oil and gas as well and follow the commodities markets as well as uh, looking at uh, kind of innovation and VCs and then in the area I'm in advanced transport everything to do with how um, electrification is occurring really across those vehicles. What sort of measures or policies or incentive schemes you've been seeing across Europe that uh, have impacted adoption? Because we see like uh, clearly different speeds uh, of adoption in, in different markets. Yeah, and the high-level one, and I kind of alluded to it on when I answered the Jag question, was around emissions and um, kind of the these timelines and targets that are set. Um, so what you sort of saw, if you if you had a graph, it's really showing like a big uptick around uh, 2019, 2021, which broadly aligns with the emissions targets getting more stringent. And I think you'll start to see the same in 2025. So speaking to one of the executives at the auto, uh, um, an automaker the other day, they're kind of saying, yeah, there might be a lull coming. A lot of incentives have dropped off around Europe, but actually uh, the emission targets will come again and, and get stricter in 2025. So we'll release more models in alignment with that. And I think that's what you've seen. And they can kind of meet some of those targets on an EU level by selling in the big market, the big countries. So you can get away with selling in Germany and, and France and um, the UK without necessarily hitting every single country. But by 2030, you will have to hit all of those. So you've got these emissions regs. You've, you've then got incentives. One of the big incentives certainly has been company cars. So benefit and kind tax. We've kind of been tracking those kind of ones. Um, and Germany, I think, just got rid of one of their big company car incentives. So we've been tracking and it hasn't fallen off a cliff. So that's interesting to see. And it's similar in China where we've kind of had moments where we've sort of held our breath to see when an incentive is reduced, is it going to hold? And it, it's usually been quite good. Um, one of them that I like is France has this bonus malice system whereby if you if you buy a car and it's it's kind of really heavily emitting, you pay a lot of tax. And that really subsidizes then the cars that are lower emitting on the road. And, and that can really be expensive. So we're on about like thousands, tens of thousands of euros to buy your Porsche 911 or something like that. And then we've got like the, the charging one. So clearly this is the bit I follow in a bit more detail. Um, one of them is carbon credit schemes. So um, what you've seen in Netherlands and Germany have some of the biggest charging networks in Europe um, is they followed these schemes that you, you have um, really starting in California, the low carbon fuel standard, whereby uh, similar to the, the bonus malice system I kind of described, but on a transport fuel basis. So if you put uh, diesel or petrol out there, then you're generating a deficit because you're doing lower emissions per unit of fuel that you've put out there. Um, and then that actually can generate a fund and that fund then pays out to people, for example, who have uh, hydrogen or biofuels, but also electricity. Um, so as I say, yeah, Germany and the Netherlands have these schemes. They've got the biggest networks in the world. They can, these revenues can account for about 10% for some of the charge point operators that we track like a Lego or EVgo. And um, somewhere between kind of five to 50 cents per kilowatt hour you could get from these schemes. So big amounts of money. And in the renewable energy directive um, update that just came out, um, I think either last month or this month, certainly within the last four weeks, um, they've approved uh, legislation that says every country in, in the EU um, should have one of these schemes. So uh, new drivers coming in as well as some of those old ones um, as well. In your opinion, what are, what are the most efficient uh, kind of subsidies? Like what, what works better? Mm, it's, it's an interesting one. Um, I don't think you can subsidize forever. So you can't say, let's get, let, let's just continually give people incentives without, without making a fund. So I quite like these ones that kind of take from 
what you don't want to happen and they give it to, to what you do want to happen. So as I described, the bonus malice or those carbon credit schemes. Um, company car, I think, has been affected, but it has to arguably come out at some point. You can't keep subsidizing a market, which in many countries now has become 20, 25% of the market. Those funds will become too much of a burden, arguably, on the taxpayer. So that might not be sustainable long term, but has been very effective um, up until now. And then kind of more targeted funds, which is hard to do. So you've seen some good and bad examples of this. I think in, in Germany, they've got a 2 billion uh, fund for, for building out the Deutsch, Deutschland Nets, which is basically um, 900 fast charging stations. I don't know whether you're involved in that one um, across the country. Arguably, uh, we, we could discuss the design of, of giving out uh, funds to networks because they actually vary quite substantially. But arguably that then gets charges where you want to have them and it's direct, it's kind of this direct and targeted subsidy. And then you've seen in Germany that they put in, um, I think it was 300 million euros or it was of that magnitude. Um, and the fund got killed in a day and it was to put on solar and chargers at homes. Well then arguably it was anybody who had an EV and they had enough money, maybe a detached house could win that fund. And then it doesn't seem very fair in society that those who already can afford a detached house and an electric car all got free solar panels and chargers at their home. So yeah, good and bad examples. I, I saw also in, in one of your articles that, um, you know, an interesting part of this funding is going to hydrogen. Are you, are you a believer of this technology or why do you think is this, this is happening? So I think the, the EU has got its hands tied somewhat in that in the um, alternative fuels regulation um, they've said you've got to have hydrogen stations, I think, every 100 kilometers on um, the key motorways in Europe. Yeah, which is insane, right, given the number of cars we have on the road. Considering the cars, considering that the, the hydrogen trucks are not quite there, um, you can never quite get things to align. And what would have been nice, I think, probably from an EU perspective, if that legislation, if a few trucks were out there that were electrified. So I can understand if you're a policymaker whilst maybe we have a belief that electric trucks are going to come out and that they're going to win out, that they, they may still be pessimistic. Um, and therefore, they put in this um, legislation for hydrogen stations because they still want to give them a fair chance. But it does look like they're going to be a niche part of the solution, um, even for trucking over time. Or certainly, that's kind of where we are at BNF at the moment. Um, when we were writing about um, that, legislation one of the other things that kind of cropped up not just the influence in kind of like hydrogen but was biofuels um the us is kind of the most stark example where you've got this 30 billion a year credit scheme uh for biofuels whilst actually the policy on vehicles is saying we want electric vehicles and then everybody's kind of saying oh this 7.5 billion the us has got is is big um but it's, it's not in terms of magnitude so trying to kind of i think for policymakers it should be trying to look at those and say okay where are they, where are we directing the money because it doesn't appear like when you you think about the the scale that um all of it is going in the in in the same magnitude as the vehicles are going um at this point in time yeah but biofuels is something different do you, do you believe in them do you think they are as sustainable as you know some companies claim um we did some analysis uh, looking at kind of Europe. I think there's a few problems w with biofuels. Obviously, a high percentage of crop based at the moment. They obviously they take up a lot of land. That can be um, difficult. And then it's the feedstocks to deliver what we would what they defining as advanced biofuels that 
appear to be problems as well. So when I, I looked into the Netherlands and where it was coming and um, some of the arguments, and I think some of the Bloomberg journalists have written on this as well, are around how do you actually ensure that what somebody is saying is this advanced biofuel is not actually mixed from things, uh, I don't know, palm oil or some of the things they're trying to cut out um, in another country. And then they, they've kind of uh, pushed it in and said that it was a waste product from another stream. Um, so I don't um, pretend to be a biofuels expert, but yes, some of the challenges um, are quite obvious, I think. You mentioned China before, like China is clearly ahead of the curve, uh, not only in terms of car manufacturing, but also in terms of uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, what lessons can we take from, from China, like uh, here in Europe? So China is just doing this at a much larger scale. So I think um, they have less detached housing. So to, to reach the number of electric vehicles on the road, then they've relied more heavily on public charging. Um, they're kind of getting into the multi-million uh, network size and they're installing like 600,000 a year, I think last year, and we're expecting somewhere around 900,000 this year. Yeah, crazy, crazy numbers. Just huge, huge numbers. And I think that has, has really driven down the cost. So whereas you've got like DC charger manufacturers in Europe and the US producing more like 10, tens of thousands of units, you've got them out in, in China producing hundreds of thousands of units or, or bigger, certainly like 10x the scale. Um, and that's, I would say, driven down the cost. So what we're seeing with some of the networks, we, we, we track the pricing. So we've actually tracked pricing coming from public charges uh, that the drivers would pay in, in Europe and the US, but we've done so um, in China as well. And often people are surprised when I say the DC charging in China, going to the faster chargers is cheaper than when you go to the AC chargers um, from what we're tracking today. I think that because of the scale, the unit cost is less. And then because of higher levels of utilization that they're probably managing to achieve, um, or we have actually looked at that, but the turnover of cars going to them also helps to drive down um, basically what you need to charge to make the business case. When you look at some of the AC ones, some of the problems do exist in China, in Europe, um, that I'll allude to, but um, maybe they're accentuated in China. So if you're at an AC charger, you might have to park for say three hours or you might have to charge for three hours. So that parking space is then gone, which then sort of ups the, the potential cost, particularly if you're in a dense city where parking spaces are a premium. Um, and then just the amount of energy that you can actually deliver uh, is, not, is not close to DC. So what we're seeing at the moment is kind of 10 to 20 kilowatt hours a day from an AC charger, but we're getting closer to kind of 100 to 200 kilowatt hours a day from a DC. And if we look at our forecasts, we're saying the DC will continue to grow. More pe people will more, more people will turn up. Uh, the turnover will be faster, but also the average power of charging will increase. Um, whereas at the AC, we're kind of saying we think that will stay low. Like the power is not going to increase. Like the the charger power is 11 kilowatt, and it will stay at that. And then because of this kind of blocking aspect, I don't know. I turn up in the evening. I plug in my car at six o'clock when I get home from work. I don't unplug it till six in the morning. But actually, I only charged for three hours in that time. That limits um, the revenues that can be achieved from those points. Kind of percentage of um, out-of-home charging do you see in China? And do you, do you see that coming also to, to Europe? Yeah, so we've been trying to do a new metric this week, actually, looking at the kilowatt hours per EV coming from public charging. So Norway was releasing some statistics, um, and so was China. And we're just trying to 
base them because the, the difficulty with the China numbers was that it's hard to tell whether the buses were included. And if the buses are included, the average goes up. But we were seeing somewhere around 2,000 kilowatt hours per EV in China. And you could probably say an EV on average is about 3,000 kilowatt hours a year. So it was suggesting around 60%, and that kind of aligns-ish with our forecast. And then in Norway, it was it was a bit lower, but it was about 600 kilowatt hours, I think, to 700 kilowatt hours. So this isn't research that we put out yet, but it just gives you a flavor of what we're seeing and, and how we're looking at it. And, and why such a difference? Is it because people in China cannot charge at home, or is, is it something different? Uh, I think that's the main contributor. So if you're in Norway, a lot of people have detached housing, and, and therefore they probably got a home charger or... If they don't have a home charger, they maybe can plug into a three-pin socket or they can go to work. Um, whereas in China, I think, yeah, there's this heavier reliance on having to charge while you're, you're out and about. Um, doesn't mean it'll stay like that forever. We've definitely noticed the number of slower chargers being installed pick up. And what what kind of fleet do you, do you see in Europe? Is, is it more people that can afford to charge at home because they have homes with, with dedicated parking spots or... Um, do, do you see like a big difference from the fleet we have in Europe uh, and in China? Um, we don't necessarily know as much about um, China as we do in Europe. From a CPO's perspective, I think these corporate drivers are a big can help with utilization. You set up a site, you make a deal with a company, and that company almost points its cars to your your site. So today, I think that can help to kind of get over the the low utilization phase, like the early years where a site has just come in um, by driving it. But in the long term, they'll probably become less of a driver um, to keep some of those sites going. In the end, like um, fleets will need dedicated, you know, infrastructure. Otherwise, they won't be able to compete with uh, with, you know, regular EV users, if I, if I say it like that. One of the other things that I just thought about China that we noticed um, was time of use tariffs. Um, so they appear to have more and they didn't always appear to align. So the obvious one is, oh, it's expensive when peak electricity demand occurs, but they didn't always sit like that. And I couldn't quite tell whether it was because of the en energy generation mix within um, that area or not. Um, and then you also potentially had this like queuing. Maybe they're increasing the cost because there's queuing in the middle of the day or at two in the afternoon. So um, it was interesting to see. Um, how they one they'd introduced it and that there's quite a limited offering of those in Europe and the US from charge point operators but then yeah secondly that they varied just on when they were actually putting the low or high prices in across the networks so you, you saw in China already like uh, you know dynamic pricing varying hourly or just uh, you know night and day like Tesla does it uh, in, in in the US today yeah so they, they almost had very depending on which points you looked at depended on when the low and the high price was so you could i don't think it was as good as dynamic where it was changing uh on on the spot but yeah you could see that like the curve uh, where it was getting higher and lower across the day and sometimes it would follow the typical one where you're expecting maybe it's going to get high um at five or something like that when peak energy demand occurs um, but there was plenty of examples where also it was the middle of the day might have been the most expensive slot which doesn't necessarily align with what you'd expect. Yeah, do, do you believe in in, in surge pricing like uh, Uber does in EV charging? Like, try to balance supply and demand and uh, with with pricing. Do you think that will happen, or that this goes against the user experience? I think it will happen. I think cost is going to be a big driver over time in this market. Um, for it, for CPOs, it it matters as well. 
uh, in some cases more than others. So in America, I think the, the grid costs differ from in most of Europe. So the peak demand charge and how it's kind of made up. But then in Europe, I, I know in some countries you do have similar problems. I think Switzerland is one of them. I think you get this like fee, which is like um, a fee per kilowatt of energy that is used in a time period, like the, the biggest time period. And um, I think in a lot of Europe, that can be not nominal, not not nothing, but not enough to change your strategy. Whereas in, in uh, countries like Switzerland and Europe, but also in um, the US, I think that fee can get quite large. So it could be like 10, 20 uh, euros per kilowatt, for example, which might mean that you need to put batteries in, or it might mean that you want to do surge pricing because your business case gets ruined if everybody turns up at the peak time. You know, like at PowerDot, we, we firmly believe that uh, destination charging uh, presents an opportunity to char change behaviors and uh, and the perception of uh, of convenience in, in EV charging. And uh, as a as an EV user uh, and expert on this matter, how important do you think that uh, uh, destination charging will be for users that can charge at home? Uh, huge, and it, it kind of links a little bit to the price point and where it, will the price or will it not change over time? Um, and we're seeing a lot of investment in this sector. So infrastructure investors going into pure play. I think you guys got about 150 million. Um, and then we're seeing um, kind of big money coming in from the utilities and the oil and gas majors. Um, and supermarkets is one where I think they're, they're sort of deciding their strategy. So do they go with some of these other companies who've already done it and, and ride that wave or do they do it themselves? Uh, Walmart in America, I think they made deals like Electrify America, and now they're going it alone. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that uh, kind of play out with a few more operators, a few more supermarkets um, across Europe. Um, and what they're obviously doing is driving traffic to their store. So today, people already go and fill up a lot of petrol at um, petrol stations. I think in the UK, it's the, the petrol stations um, next to the supermarkets deliver about twice as much fuel than the ones that are not on the supermarkets. So people already like going there uh, because it, one, it's probably a level of convenience. They're already at the supermarket. And two, they lower the price. So you, yeah. you actually go there and you buy more goods. So I think more of that will occur um, over time as well not just from the supermarkets, but now everybody has that opportunity or a lot of other companies where they can say, Do you know what, it's at the gym. Let's have, a, let's drive you to my gym more and we'll put some, some charging there or any type of retail store really. Do you think that charger attract users or locations and the underlying use case of a location attracts the users? I think it's a little bit of both. So when you think about the oil and gas stations, they're obviously starting, uh, some of those companies are starting to install more chargers. But fundamentally, if I'm going to spend 40 minutes of my time, 20 to 40, I mean, if you look at the fast charger usage today, it's about 20 minutes, maybe a little bit longer, depending on which country you're in. Um, if I'm going to spend 20 to 40 minutes of my time, I probably not want to be somewhere with no amenities. So just purely installing the chargers is probably not the right strategy and they need to be in the right locations where there's something to do that you kind of want to do as well. So what's going to happen to on-route charging in your opinion? <laughs> yeah, I think if it's in a location where kind of there's a high traffic route, that will stay and, and prove fruitful. And if you think about the, the regulation at the moment, actually a lot of the regulation has gone into high traffic routes, put the chargers on it. You could argue they should have been going for local urban areas where people who only travel 
40 miles a day on average, they're not hitting the motorway anyway. So should they have been putting money into having fast chargers in urban areas to push this this kind of adoption as well? Um, yeah, so I think some of the ones on route will, and the gas stations will, will struggle. Um, but obviously there will be high traffic locations that will do well. But, you know, like I... I... I think there is a there is a trend in the market that uh, more power means better station, you know, and uh, this goes a little bit against what uh, what we do in in destination charging. So, I think there's in destination charging there's a underlying belief that uh, there's a suitable charger for the correct location, and this means that, for instance, uh, for users who spends a night in a hotel versus for a user who drops. Uh, by a shopping mall for a quick lunch, they're, they're, uh, the, the use case is completely different, and it, it should be reflected in the in the charging experience. Um, what do you think about this? Do you think there's like power, more power means better charging? Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at um, the hotel example versus the um, kind of stopping off for a lunch or going to the supermarket, the hotel you're going to want maybe even three kilowatt you might be able to get away with, but three three to kind of 20 kilowatt charging for overnight. And then if, you, if you're stopping off, you need enough to know that you're going to be able to fill up. And finding what that point is, is probably a little bit difficult. So on the fast charging networks today, we're seeing about kind of the average power is only 60 to 70 kilowatt. So you might install a 350 kilowatt charger, but actually they're not delivering that much energy most of the time, either because the vehicle can't accept that amount of power um, or uh, maybe there's other people drawing power from the other bits and they, they split it. So we're only really seeing an average of about 70 go. That could increase because what people really probably want to know is I've stopped off to do my shopping and then I'm going to fill up. And what they don't want to do is come out. And if you turn it to the petrol example, I filled up five liters in my car. That's kind of annoying when you, you really at that point, you want to have your car full. Um, so then if you think about the, the 20 minutes to half an hour today, you could do most of the cars with 100 to maybe 150 kilowatt of power um, in that 20 to 40 minutes. You'd probably fill up the 60 to 70 kilowatt hours of battery. The question then comes, how big a battery is going to get? So is the technology going to kind of jump such that there's a bigger expectation? But I don't think fundamentally um, that the actual pattern is going to change so much in that people when they're stopping, they kind of want to stop for 20 to 40 minutes. I don't think you're suddenly going to find people stopping for two minutes um, in that scenario. Um, so the only way it would occur is if maybe you get to megawatt charging into ordinary vehicles, and then you end up back to perhaps the more gas station model we have today, but it doesn't appear that that's going to happen anytime soon. I don't think the technology is, is going in that direction, right? Like uh, what we're seeing is like, uh, stabilization of, of of the size of batteries i think we we can live with um, 600 kilometers of range between 400 and 600 i believe how do you see the world like in in a few years time when there were when there's chargers basically everywhere because destination charging is growing and every single use case of location will have some kind of uh, charger there like what do you think is going to be the pattern the charging pattern i think people are probably inherently lazy maybe i'm being a bit harsh but when you get to the mass market, I would say there's probably going to be more people who are a bit more aware of price and that they don't want to be plugging in all the time. So maybe that, like they'll they'll settle down to some of the patterns you see with home charging. 
So home charging, you could charge every night if you wanted to fill up the 40 miles you've done each day. But what we're, we see in some of our analysis is that people are charging kind of every three days more than they would charge every night. Um, obviously, that's ultimate convenience. You're sort of driving, the charger is at your spot. Um, but I think as this comes from like the early adopter consumers to mass market, we might see a little bit more uh, people thinking about where where they're going based on the price of it and also not wanting to plug in all the time just to, again out of whatever's it like the path of least resistance i suppose got it got it and in, in, in a charging station uh what do you think is the most important characteristic like uh, what are the must-haves and the nice to haves in a in a, in a charging station in your opinion I mean, it working is obviously one of them and that you can argue yeah. who is to blame for it not working. I know the communications between the, the um, charger and the vehicle is a huge topic. Um, and I think your side often will get the blame. If it doesn't work, it's probably going to be a consumer ring in the charging company. But certainly a lot of that is probably down to implementation from the vehicle OEMs as well. Um, so it working is one of them and it being clear what you're actually going to be charged and what is being delivered. So we talked about the average power being 70 kilowatt. It's quite difficult when you go from a world of petrol and like it's I'm going to fill up and it's 60 liters and it costs this much. Like people understand that. But this variance in like the power that's being received across the session is quite confusing. Um, and it's just trying to normalize like the, the costs and, and what you're actually receiving and how long it's going to take. We, do you, we really believe that electric mobility is a team sport and, and this requires a very strong alignment with with other CPOs, EMSPs, OEMs, you know, and, and this is crucial because we, we ourselves, we cannot, we don't control the whole value chain. Only Tesla controls the whole value chain because they go from producing the car to, to the charging experience. Doing this kind of team sport for us is quite important. And, and what's, what's your perspective on that, on this? And, uh, what do you think? Or what, what do you think is going to be the impact of? Of, of this alignment in, in the transition from ICEs to EVs? Everybody in the value chain at the moment is sort of figuring out, and if you go to conferences, they're kind of, everybody plays nice. Ultimately, everybody wants to own the customer though. So whether it's that retail store versus you or uh, versus the CPO or the CPO versus even um, the automaker, each one of those really wants to own the consumer in some way. And, and actually charging is quite a key position to try and do that, either through uh, the navigation in the car. So Tesla navigates you straight to Tesla points and obviously CPOs like yourself probably fighting to be in Tesla's navigation or in other people's navigation and pointed that way. So this still has, I think, some way to run in terms of how it, how it plays out and who are the winners. I mean, even the other day I was talking around like plug and charge and the, the percentage of um, kind of transactions that would take place in future through uh, the CPO and through plug and charge and through other methods and which ones are advantageous to who. And uh, the discussion kind of moved on to uh, the lobbying of some of the uh, kind of financial players in this market who want fees that they already get at the moment. So if you go through plug and charge, perhaps um, you might be a bank transfer and then that fee that you would normally pay with your credit card provider they don't receive anymore so they've been lobbying i think to to um uh to try and make it so that there is credit card readers on all the charge points 
Um, so interesting kind of dynamics still going on. And I suppose ultimately everybody has their own business models and way they want to do it. And if you own the consumer, you can point them to, to ways that you can make money. But the biggest alignment that is arguably the most problematic is on the grid. So we discussed like uh, some of the grid fees earlier, but obviously getting a grid connection and how much that costs and can you actually get it in an amount of time that is um, reasonable um, is has the potential to be a bit of a blocker in this, particularly as we scale up uh, from kind of a low base in some countries of installations to kind of multi-megawatt installations and not just for passenger vehicles, but kind of we're talking 10 megawatt plus stations for trucks. And that might be like a, a bigger challenge um, for that alignment. Yeah, absolutely agree. Like, um, you know, getting the grid connection is, is key. Um, in, in some countries is more difficult than others. Um, you know, we see that in Spain is a uh, very difficult to obtain, like the, the amount of power that you, you need to install, you know, a charging station and it takes like ages just to get approvals and stuff. Like, uh, um, in Portugal, in France, it takes, it takes a bit of time, but it normally happens. So you can, you can be successful in the end. So I think it's, it also rise across several markets and this also will uh, differentiate the speed of deployments in, in, in different markets, I guess. One of the things that we've been looking at, which is kind of on the topic of slowing it down, um, Tesla and uh, Fastnet are suing um, the autobahn, basically. Um, so I was writing about that last last week. And, and uh, what they're saying is you can't just add on this concession that you gave for petrol stations to add EV charging. That isn't fair. We want to have a chance to bid into it. And a lot of these concession contracts that exist are like 10 to 30 years. And what that means is that you could potentially slow it or, or be handing those concessions straight to, to kind of gas companies who either have no interest or are not necessarily competitive. Maybe they would be, but if you don't put a competitive tender out, then you can't know. So a dynamic there that's going to be more interesting to follow as um, particularly a fear rolls out in, in kind of uh, earnest um, and people have to meet the, the kind of... Um, targets to install infrastructure on the highways across Europe where these concessions will come into play. How do you think the, the world will look like? Like, uh, Do you think plug and charge will be the, the technology uh, that everybody will use? Uh, what's the role of EMSPs in the market in the future in European? How, how do you see this? Yeah, it's a hard question because we're just at the start of the curve. So don't want to uh, use my crystal ball too much. But um, I think it's coming. Um, the automakers, again, you could argue that this is a good way for them to catch a consumer. If, if they can have their EMSP contract within the car, then they're using the car and they're going through some ecosystem that they've created and, and that's probably what they want. Um, so I think, it, I think it's going to come. Um, we haven't seen everybody implement it yet. And you might be actually better positioned to say how it's than I am on, on how implementation with the CPOs is going. Um, maybe before that, just on the EMSPs, um, they seem quite strongly positioned, um, some of the bigger ones anyway, um, to continue in this market. Um, and obviously, that it's how much of a feeder they take and whether they can drive it down. We've done some analysis on this, and 
Um, I think Shell was like one of the most expensive EMSPs when you averaged out their pricing, whereas the car makers, maybe because they want you to use the car and go through them, um, actually had some of the cheapest EMSP offerings. So um, another way that this market can play out. Ryan, I think we are uh, almost uh, on time here. Um, I would like to thank you very much for, for joining us and to share uh, your insights and uh, and to be with us. I hope you enjoyed this this, this conversation. Yeah, I did. really enjoyable. And thanks for sharing as well uh, from your side. And i um, sure we'll continue the conversation. Thank you for listening to Destination Charging. For more insights and to stay connected with our mission to accelerate sustainable mobility, please visit our show notes for links and further resources. Don't forget to review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, and keep moving forward with Destination Charging.